Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we'll be discussing the newly ended MLB lockout, which at 99 days was the second longest work stoppage in Major League Baseball's history. Um, It was finished with a deal that was agreed to between the Players Union and the 30 owners just last week. Um, We're going to dive a bit into the details of that deal. We're going to discuss some of the things that we discussed just a couple months ago when the lockout was well underway um, in terms of how this all shook out, um, how the players got a little of what they wanted, but owners got probably more of what they wanted. Um, it, it, you know, it's a lengthy agreement. There's a lot to dive into. Where do we begin? What, what stands out to you about the, um, the deal that was reached between the two sides here? Well, I think the first thing that we, I think a good place to start is, and because you mentioned, you know, the players got a little of what they wanted, the owners, the 30 tyrants got probably more on their end. It's important to note that the vote on this was very interesting by the Players Association. The executive board made up of eight players, active players uh, from various teams, voted unanimously against it. Uh, but once the player reps voted as well, the final vote was 26 to 12, meaning that only four teams held out. We do happen to know those four teams. And here's a list that will anger every single baseball fan listening. Uh, the holdouts were the Yankees, the Mets, the Astros, and the Cardinals. And unsurprisingly, that's probably because all four of those teams had a guy on the executive board. Or in the case of uh, the Cardinals, had a guy who just became a free agent but served with them this past year on the executive board. That was Andrew Miller. Um, So it was weird that it was even presented as a proposal, that it was even taken up for a vote. But it seems like the executive board said, we think this is not a good enough deal. We think we can get you more. And the player said, uh, at large, the the players with their team said, you know what? I think we can live with this. So that already tells you sort of the nature of the compromise involved to the point that if you were somebody, if you were Max Scherzer and you were staring down, you know, uh, MLB lawyers and owners at the table in Florida, you had a very different view of how these negotiations were going than if you were somebody who just was raring to go into spring training, get your arms loose, start working out, get back in the team facilities. And that, I think, is a very interesting dynamic that we're going to get back into later on in the show because it tells you something about the divisions in the PA that we know the owners wanted to exploit. I I think the timing is definitely worth noting. This came just in advance of the MLB's, uh, was it second or third self-imposed threshold for we're definitely going to be canceling games if this goes any longer. Um, which the first one came and went without a deal. But this time of year in March, when the threat of games and game checks going away uh, is increasingly real, is when some players definitely start feeling the heat of that. You know, as we discussed on our previous episode on this, you know, a lot of these players are making, you know, six figures, nice amount of money, but they are not making the tens of millions that you maybe associate with pro athletes. And as we discussed on that episode, an increasing number of players in major league baseball are on those minimum salary contracts. They are not yet reached uh, arbitration, which kicks in after three years in the league, something like half the league has not reached that threshold. You know, a majority of pro baseball players never get a free agent contract. Right. And and it's also important to note that as far as timing goes, this was also shortly after the, well, the owners didn't announce it. That's what was curious. Um, Apple 
announced that it had reached a streaming deal with Major League Baseball, which I have to imagine that the 30 tyrants and their puppet weren't very happy about uh, because they were turning their pockets out and crying poor and pretending to be Dickensian orphans looking through the toy store window or whatever. And then App- then Tim Apple basically went out there and ruined that pretense by saying, no, no, we're paying them a lot of money to uh, show games. We're, we're, yeah. we're doing a thing here. Yeah, well, and it was revealed shortly after Manfred announced that they were going to cancel at least the first two series uh, of the, the start that the uh, cable contracts with MLB, by and large, don't pay anything until later in the season. So MLB wasn't going to lose any money off of canceling games. The players were the ones that were going to uh, do that. Uh, of course, Manfred failed to mention any of that when he canceled it, and it was left to other reporters. Um, of course, I don't remember who <laughs> uh, to break that news. So yeah, MLB from the beginning had way too much power in going into this, which is to be expected. Um, but it did result in a, a less than favorable outcome for the players. Yeah. And I guess that that's probably a pretty good segue to talk about what this outcome was, right? Oh, hello. Um, just before we move on to that, I think it's also worth noting that in addition to this, you know, new TV contract with Apple, uh, there was another thing that put the lie to the idea that MLB owners, you know, just don't have any money to spend on players, which is the uh, Braves, who are owned by a publicly traded company, had to release their financials, the only MLB team in this situation. Um, and it was noted that they made a lot of money, you know, record profits in 2021. Just You, you know Freddie so. Freeman was seething reading that article. For those of you who may who not follow baseball, Freddie Freeman is the first baseman for the Atlanta baseball team, uh, which was, I expect to be was. their name. Was yes, he he is was. a free agent at the he is you might say a free man at this point, <laughs> and it's almost considered a foregone conclusion that he's not going to resign with them at this point, despite the fact that again the Atlanta baseball team, which I expect to be their name within the next couple of years, made a buttload of money. So they easily, I mean, any team could pay any player. We know this, but it, it's particularly the case that they're full of it in this situation. At any rate, so now that you understand the stakes, you know, the owners are crying poor, pretending they don't have money to spend on players. The players are pointing out their concerns are, especially this time, about protecting that big pool of players that are pre-arbitration, which I think, Ryan, you said... Um, pre-R players make up about 40% of the league at this point. Mm-hmm. Something which, in that area. Which is a plurality. I mean, yes. Uh, to be clear, I think the statistic was that they make up like 45% of the time on rosters. Oh, okay. You know? Yes. So that, because presumably that would also include option guys and things like that. I don't know. We don't have to get into the technicalities of it. But the point is that as with every other industry that we profile on this show, baseball owners love sure money. And a way to get sure money is to put a player that you only have to pay. I think the previous minimum salary was somewhere on the order of $525,000 a year. You put them out there and you make crazy amounts of money off of the profit that that player's performance brings you. Really, frankly, to some degree, agnostic of the player's performance, even if they suck. You're going to make that money off of the TV deals. You're going to make that money off of the data deals. You're going to make that money off of gate receipts to an extent. God only knows how, because baseball games are horrendously expensive to attend in most places. Um, And you're going to make that money back, and many times over. So everything is a sure investment if you're bringing in a player that you only have to pay that minimum amount. So the union, I think very intelligently decided to focus its efforts on making life better for those players. They didn't get as much as they should have and as they wanted to, but they did improve the the minimum salary. It's now, I believe, 700000 going into 2022. Yes, um, it increased from 570000 which was the standard as of last year, to 700000 And while these big increases are common when a new CBA comes around, um, it does mark a, you know, bigger the biggest 
percentage-wise increase since uh, the 2003 CBA. And what's more, it also does um, a bit more in terms of over the length of the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, it'll increase in increments each year of that CBA. There's It's a five-year deal. So by the end of it, by 2026, the minimum salary in Major League Baseball will be $780,000, an an additional 11% bump. Yep. Is that, you know, in line with what Major League Baseball's revenue will do in that time? Probably no. not. It will probably increase by a larger percentage, but it is the, um, you know, like you said, Noah, it was a priority for the players to get something more for the youngest players in the league, the le- least established players in the league, and this is what they got for them. They also increased, and I think this is important, they also increased the league minimum, or sorry, the minimum salaries for minor leaguers who are on the 40-man roster, so guys that aren't playing every day but who are protected by their teams. They're they're not subject to the Rule 5 draft and other kind of mechanisms through which other teams can claim them. And um, again, it's pretty obvious that the union went into this with a very different strategy from... uh, even the 2020 negotiations, they their focus was on protecting the newest and least stable guys, which I think from a certain point of view, um, not only makes sense for the public relations battle, but that's also going to be your future union leadership. So there's a, you know, it, it, it builds your succession plan to say we stood up for the guys who are making the least amount of money. Hopefully that means that when they are our age and they've made their money and all of that, they will pass that on. They will pay that forward to the next person or the next generation of players. Rather the, the other two big issues, I think that players really wanted to focus on um, you've got the competitive balance tax, which has another name that I'm not going to use here and service time manipulation. Which one do we want to break into? I, I think it'd be good to sort of talk about service time manipulation just because that's also a subject for the youngest, least established players in the league. Um, as we discussed on the last episode on this topic, um, you know, MLB players, uh, when they hit, you know, six years in the league, six years of service time, as they term it, uh, they become free agents. They can, you know, ply their trade wherever they choose. And usually they end up making a decent amount of money because teams have to bid for their services. Um, MLB teams in recent years over the past couple collective bargaining agreements have taken steps to, you know, try and skirt the rules, try and um, evade the spirit of the rules, but, you know, abiding by the letter of the CBA and sort of reducing the amount of service time that players accrue. Effectively, they would keep players in the minors just to, just long enough so that they wouldn't get credit for a full year in the majors until another year had rolled around. They would stay under team control for another year. They would stay, you know, pre-arbitration for another year. So it's nothing but a win for the teams and nothing but a loss for the players. In an effort to curb this, uh, the solution that this new CBA reaches is um, to have a pool of bonus money that will go towards the highest performing players in the first three years in the league. Uh, these pre-arbitration guys, it's something in the area of $50 million. Do I have that right? Yep. The uh, the players started with 105 million and the owners countered with a laughable $5 million. And uh, they ended up at about 50. I believe the owner's first offer was we're not going to have a pool. Well, Yes. But that's yeah. But I don't consider Michael Corleone's offers offers. <laughs> that's a reference. Um, yeah. The the so here's the thing, right? Like we've gotten to the point where it almost makes sense to like an alien would in an old timey sci fi movie say six of your major league baseball years when talking about a player service time. <laughs> the only thing here that directly that directly affects. Um, service time manipulation is that if you finish first or second in rookie of the year voting, you get credit for a full year of service time, regardless of when you were called up. 
the rest of this, I don't understand how this keeps owners and and front offices, really, because I don't think most owners are the ones, you know, rolling up their sleeves and doing the analytics with all the nerds. Um, it, how does it stop them from still doing the same thing? I mean, the, it just the gives answer the players really more money, doesn't. right? Um, you know, like, like I said, this was sort of an exploit in the previous CBA and the CBA Service sort of time speed run. treats it as something that is just a rule of nature going forward. You know, it's going to be expected from owners that they'll try and do this. Um, what it does effectively is try and reward a little bit the players who would be most affected by it. Yeah, that's that's the annoying part of it is how many rookies are there or, or rookie eligible players are there every year like there's got to be dozens right across all the teams and and if you're randy rosarena you're eligible two years yeah uh uh, so this you're having dozens of players compete for essentially one or two spots and if we all remember how uh whatever the bush administration's no child left behind and obama's uh Race to the top. Race to the top. Like that doesn't actually improve the situation. It's just creating an environment where you're sending breadcrumbs to the masses uh, that they can very clearly afford to do otherwise. I, I, I want to be pedantic for a second and just point out that under No Child Left Behind, those one or two spots were the ones you were competing not to be in. <laughs> okay, those were Those were the ones you didn't want. <laughs> why why do you know is- so much about No Child Left Behind, Noah? Who can say? At any rate, mostly I went to college. But anyway, the 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 thing about service... So the players... I want to point out that the players did try to address this problem in more concrete ways. I don't think it made it into the final deal. Details are a little bit hard to come by sometimes, and it kind of depends on what the article you're reading wants to emphasize. And I haven't paid for an athletic subscription. So anyway... I think the players proposed giving draft pick compensation to the owners if they called up rookies for a full year, which in previous CBAs, that has really been the only way to get owners to do, pardon me, to do something by giving them things for doing it because they're rich people and rich people like treats. Yeah, they need to be given their treats. They, They need to slop up those treats. And that's the only way you get them to do anything. But all of this is to say that they did try to address service time manipulation in a more direct way, and the owners were not having it because it would remove their ability. Because rewarding them for doing the right thing doesn't matter because they what's important to them is not having to do the right thing, regardless of whether they get anything for it. From I'm, I'm guessing from a front office point of view, you'd say, you know, you don't know if a draft pick is going to be a bust. You don't know if they're going to pan out. It's not always good to have uh, the way these people talk, another mouth to feed or something like that, um, versus you know the way they have it right now. It's a win-win, as Ryan said, and it's a lose-lose for the players. And that was the important part to them, to keep that level of control. Speaking of another mouth to feed, was there something at some point about a CBA where meal allowances were cut for the players? really annoyed no them. no that was a uh, owners were gonna cut we're, we're gonna reduce meal allowances as part of one of their proposals and the players you know noticed and basically said like this is nuts like this, so, this so is literally another mouth to feed and they're like bro no no uh and by the way i want to point out i think marley rivera who is an espn reporter or at least was the last time i i checked um wrote something about now under the new cba if a player requests either an ESL, English as a second language, or a Spanish as a second language course, the team has to offer it as long as the player requests it by April 19th. So that's actually really cool. Um, I mean, I'm sure they'll find a way to, you know, poop all over it, but it is what it is. Any further thoughts on service time manipulation? No, I, I, I think we've, uh, you know, covered this threshold as far as... Um... As far as the youngest players in the league, I, I think this might make a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we can talk a bit about the things at the top end 
of the salary spectrum and how the new CBA handles teams and their spending more broadly. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We're talking today about the uh, MLB lockout, which just was uh, finished with a agreement between the Major League Baseball Players Association and the owners of the 30 teams. And in our first segment, we talked a lot about, you know, what was the Players Association's focus in these negotiations on players who are just getting into the league at the start of their contracts, who um, over the last few years especially have emerged as um, – a real source of value for the owners because they don't have to pay them that much. And we talked about how this new CBA increases by a decent chunk, the minimum salary for MLB players and does some things to um, at, at the very least reward the best of those young players before they reach the stage of their career where they can, you know, uh, debate with their teams over whether their stats justify higher pay. Um, we're going to move on in this segment to talk a bit about, uh, some of the other aspects of the CBA. Um, you know, I teased the idea that this would be neatly divided between start of career and, you know, big money players late in career. We'll see if that shakes out. But, um, the, the first big thing that I think we should get to in this segment is, uh, this, uh, competitive balance tax, which is MLB's euphemistic term for what fans generally call the luxury tax, uh, this is effectively a surge charge that the league makes teams pay once their payroll exceeds a certain amount of, well, once their payroll exceeds a certain threshold. In recent years, that threshold has hovered around $200 million. So across your 40-man roster, you can spend $200 million before you start having to pay tax on additional new salary. And MLB famously is the one league in American professional sports that does not have an official salary cap, but as the Players Association argued, and um, as has been made clear recently, um, the CBT threshold was treated as a de facto salary cap because teams are heavily resistant to going over it, and they are punished heavily if they stay over it for multiple years in a row. I'm running out of words to say here. Noah, do you have thoughts, Lou? Well, from a roster construction point of view, what it encourages is kind of short windows of contention, right? You pay up big, and if you incur the CBT for a year or two, cool, as long as you punch it in and maybe win a title or a couple pennants in that time, and then you shed payroll so that you don't have to pay that, so that you don't have to pay the tax, and it resets, which is a thing rich people love doing avoiding penalties they love doing this from mlb the irs it's one of their favorite things yes uh their consciences if they have anything left of them they love doing that and this basically encourages it now the players wanted uh in in 2021 the cbt threshold was 210 million the players asked that it be increased to 245 the owners countered with 214 million dollars which is, if you've been paying attention to the reheating stove now, is what Andrelton Simmons is getting played by the Cubs to catch COVID. <laughs> Again. Loves catching things, Andrelton Simmons. Anyway. He's very good at it. He is. And boy, uh, yeah, without the vaccine, he's going to keep doing that a lot more. Uh, but in the end, what they got was a $230 million increase. So that's a big jump for 2022, but then the increases are very small for the next few years. They are on the order of something like four, three million dollars thereabouts. Um, and then I think they also added a new tier, right, into the mix. Yes, uh, there's now a fourth tier of competitive balance tax, which means if you exceed this new threshold, this 
extra special threshold, which is something on the order of $270 million in the first year. That's actually the third tier. This one's 290. Okay. So you have to spend a lot of money to hit this, but once you do, you'll be paying an additional 80% of uh, each salary to the league. And that money ostensibly goes towards uh, revenue sharing and helping the teams in small markets that, you know, just don't have the money to spend in MLB's mythos. Uh, that helps. That is why it's called a competitive balance tax, because the idea is that this means, you know, everybody's on a fair playing field. Um, I think it's worth debunking that idea in this segment that, um, you know, none of this is really about competitive balance or parity, which is a a term that league owners love throwing around. Um, Major League Baseball actually of American pro sports has a lot of parity. It has a lot of teams from year to year, some changeover among who's competitive, who's making deep runs in the playoffs. Something on the order of like 27 or 28 teams have won a playoff series in just the last decade, um, Mm -hmm. which cannot be said for any of the other pro leagues, like leagues that have a hard salary cap also ostensibly to ensure parity have dynasties that MLB hasn't really seen. Um, So I, I will say that it's worth pointing out that baseball being the most inherently random sport and having playoffs tacked onto a season, right. Also has a lot to do with that. If we were still doing like best record at the end of the year, wins the pennant. And that was that, that we would probably be talking about an entirely different thing, but that's still true. Like you do still get much more balance between teams as it is. Yeah. Right? And, and also to be clear, none of the teams are like hurting for cash in any any capacity whatsoever. The lowest valued MLB team right now is the uh, Marlins and they're worth about a billion dollars. They're worth $990 million. This is so like the payroll is nothing. It really is as far as the brand value and everything like that. And this is, I think the essence of why players and the sports fans who are not hogs are, we're so upset about the uh, rhetoric and the, the lockout that all of the owners have billions of dollars at their disposal and they're complaining about spending a few grand on additional player salaries, which is absurd, absolutely absurd from beginning to end. So the fact that there is a salary cap, the fact that there isn't a minimum salary uh, or there hasn't been, and it's not, sorry, let me read salary floor. Yeah, there's not a salary floor. Uh, like it's ridiculous, and and definitely uh, the owners have the upper hand as far as the rhetoric that's going out, just because they do, for for no yeah. other reason than we like rich people in this country. Yeah, the amount of bootlegging has been truly prodigious over the course of this lockout. Um, like I I knew that that was coming because most baseball fans are hogs. But some of the stuff that that got said was really out there. Um, not well, it wasn't just fans. You also had you know reporters and especially from league outlets. Um, you know John Heyman, not to single him out, but no, please do. Our, Jim Bowden, former general manager, who's like banned from baseball. You have these reporters who work for MLB Network and are thus being paid directly by the league and. Naturally, their talking points, the ones they end up reporting on, line up with what owners want. Um, How dare you say the league is control it has in-house media? How could you possibly? Yeah, no, that's, that's it, ridiculous. Yeah, it, it's been pretty obvious. Yes, the rhetoric from fans, from... Um, it was... The players, I think, knew that they were behind the eight ball in that regard from the get-go, and I think that's why a lot of their outreach was to younger players because they knew that those are the guys most susceptible to being reached by that sort of thing. And by focusing on their concerns, I think they won themselves a much deeper source of support. And hopefully, hopefully the public nature of these negotiations, which is something we've always brought up, 
you know, if you're if you're somebody who's getting into the game right now, like maybe you did see how the players get screwed when when they don't hold together, and maybe you can see how just full of it the owners are, and and really honestly how because this is a team, this is a term that gets thrown around a lot in baseball fandom. How soft they are, they're complaining about paying of like a between a third and a fourth of their team's value in payroll. And, and that's that's the fourth tier. That's the Steve Cohen tax. That's the one that exists just so the Mets can't, quote unquote, buy their way to a World Series, which they won't. It's the Mets. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and I want to point out, by the way, that the Dodgers budget, and this is interesting, I think, I, I don't know if this is how the previous thresholds were set, but they're set in 20 million increments. And what's very interesting is that the Dodgers budget comes in, the payroll does, at 285.6 million. So they just barely avoid cracking that fourth tier. And you and I wonder if they were like 15 million, 17 million tier. No, no, 20 million, 20 million. Trust me on this. We got to do it this way for reasons. Reasons. Are you implying um, that the league was throwing it for the Dodgers? That's never happened before. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. The Dodgers, the Dodgers have never done anything with they were holding uh, out for another things against game the rules. Series. That's never happened. Yeah. They were holding out for another 60 game series. At any rate, point being, <laughs> the competitive balance tax is a failure of game design. All it does is encourage teams to seek to say we're going to punch it in within these next 4 years or we're going to die trying. And most of them by definition because only one team can win the World Series every year are going to die trying. So you're going to get these teams going through boom and bust cycles. And while I'm as big a fan of immersive uh, teaching styles as anybody else, I don't particularly want to see the American economy represented in a baseball team's <laughs> fortunes. So it, 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 this is something that it would be better if it went away. And if revenue sharing was not tied to well, making big market teams reduce their, their playoff comp- competitiveness. Well, again, that gets to the point, which is that it's not really about game design or parity or competitive balance. It is about keeping salaries down. It is because exactly. ownership in Oakland and Pittsburgh is resentful of the owners who would spend one cent more than they are legally required to spend on players. Because if they had their way, everybody would pay the bare minimum to players and you know whoever wins it's a crapshoot but and that is illustrated most by the fact that Rob Manfred started uh in 2019 awarding a championship belt to the team who kept their arbitration salaries the lowest in the league that's what they and, actually care about and if you're somebody if you're interested in this stuff you may have watched the Dave Steve documentary the first episode of which came out 2 weeks ago Arbitration is a process where the player presents their number, the team presents their number, they make their arguments, and the judge has to pick one of the two. No in-between, which I think I've gotten wrong on a previous episode. So, uh, it, you know, in, in that case, you may have learned that the Blue Jays in, in the 80s used a completely unhinged set of statistics to argue that this player was mediocre when he absolutely was not. This is a thing that still happens all the time. So basically, this is a championship belt, a $20 championship belt that is being awarded to a team for lying. That is what it is. That is what you're awarding that for. So the next time owners talk about like character or John Heyman goes off about like MLB owners feel, you know, uh, uh, disgusted with the last proposal or Union Buster only says some BS about uh, why the players aren't, aren't coming down on the side of the owners more. Remember that. Remember that that's the organization they work for and they draw their paychecks from. There's, um, Lou, you mentioned earlier that MLB does not have a salary floor. Owners are not required to pay any more than the minimum salary, you know, if they so choose. Uh, The Marlins have very often so chosen. But the CBA does do a couple things to, at the bottom end of the league structure, you know, at the very least, nudge owners towards spending more. It doesn't require them. It doesn't make them, but it does nudge them. Um, One of those things is uh, what is, there's now a draft lottery, which means that 
No longer will the team with the worst record in the league be guaranteed the top pick in the next year's draft of you know prospects coming into the league. Instead, there will be you know some element of randomization that means that team with the worst record only has like a 25% chance of the number one pick now and all the way down to team, you know, with the 18th worst record has one or less than 1% chance of nabbing that pick. So this is to discourage uh, tanking, which is sort of the opposite end of that boom and bust cycle. You talked about Noah, where teams are deliberately not really trying to compete uh, teams like the Orioles now, and you know, frankly, not to offend any of my co-hosts here, but the Astros in the early part of the last decade, you know, did not field competitive teams for a couple years in a row, and then earned a lot of high draft picks as a result, and those draft picks paid off quite spectacularly towards the end of the decade. This is a tactic that is not open, but is definitely you know, fans are aware of, and you know in some cases on board with, you know, you get calls to trust the process in the NBA um, or in the NFL. Yeah. Right here in Western New York, especially in the NBA and NFL. There's because the draft picks are more public and will have a more immediate impact on teams. You see teams, fan bases really celebrate earning the number one pick. Um, The NBA has a draft lottery. The NFL does not lose Um, behavior. And what this new CBA does is it means that teams that are in the um, revenue sharing, they receive money from the revenue sharing payments. Uh, After three years, they'll no longer be eligible for that lottery. They will no longer be able to um, get the number one pick or to get a pick within the top 18 even because the lottery includes every team that doesn't make the playoffs, which, by the way, now includes 12 teams. MLB wanted more playoff games, more playoff revenue. It's something that they uh, got the Players Association to concede on. Yep, in exchange probably for the universal designated hitter, also known as the job creation program for guys who can't field or run anymore, which is fair. Um should we, if if we're going to talk about drafts, should we start talking international Absolutely. draft at this yes. point? Yes. So th- this is an issue that is near and dear to my heart because, uh, well, for many reasons, but one of which is that Puerto Rico used to be in the international draft, which I did not learn until this year. And then when it got added to the MLB draft, suddenly Puerto Rican fortunes kind of, you know, uh, um, or sorry, I don't think, sorry, they were not in the international draft. They were in the international system. And then when they were added to MLB, that's when you saw Puerto Rican players sort of shrink as part of MLB, really. Um, there's other reasons for that, but that was one of them. Anyway. Could you explain just a bit why they would have shrunk um, mm-hmm. going from being so, treated as internationals to going through the MLB draft? So the international system as it exists right now is kind of the Wild West. There are supposed to be rules on what can happen and which deals you can make, and what age of players you can sign, and so on. But if you've been listening to this show, you know that MLB doesn't do a damn thing to enforce any rules on any of its teams, except when, you know, something becomes public, and then they they have to look like they're taking a stance. So what we've got right now is, especially in the Dominican Republic, but also in Venezuela, also I think increasingly in Mexico and Colombia, their systems of baseball academies and camps and other sorts of like organizations, trainers, gyms, things like that. Sorry, I just made it sound like Pokemon for a second there. Um, that teams make these deals with players and bring them into the organization during the international signing period, which these days is in January or opens in January. And teams get a certain amount of money that they can spend. I, I think it's um, based on the average value of their draft picks. It's very arcane uh, what amount of money they get, but that's the amount they have to spend on international players. And it's gotten to the point where some MLB teams are making deals with 12-year-old kids, which, frankly, not a thing that should be happening. But the weird bit about it is that in some ways, it's 
I hesitate to use this phrase because this is real out of context theater right here, but like there are ways in which this is about as close to an ideal free agency system as you get. Because the player, as he develops, if you're Juan Soto, right? If you're God's gift to baseball and you originally agreed for $100,000 with, I don't know, the Orioles, right? And then you turn into Juan Soto a couple of years down the road, you can say, now I'm going to cost you $500,000 and you can't do anything about it because MLB will come knocking on your door. You know, you, if, if this becomes, if you snitch, you are actually going to become the problem here. And usually it's not you doing it. It's your trainer. It's your family. It's the adults in your life. But for simplicity's sake. So there's a certain amount of power that international players have in that regard or the people supporting them. MLB wants to replace this this with a draft with mandated compensation levels because, again, rich people love sure money. They love knowing that if I'm going to spend, I don't know, $1.2 million dollars that better be all I'm spending. I am going to spend exactly $1.2 million. That is what is going in the books. I can ship that. I can put it in the summary. I can have my accountants, you know, wrap it up in the forms. Boom, done. If you say, oh, the range might be between $600,000 and $1.2 million, suddenly there's a problem because you might get, you might feel taken advantage of at that point because you're rich and you see threats behind every, you know, door. So the international draft was what they wanted the players to agree to, claiming that it would curb these abuses by setting a minimum age and other sorts of things like that. But there's a couple problems with that. Uh, One is that MLB let things get this bad so that they could institute a draft, which tells you how disinterested they are in enforcing any kind of punishments on clubs that break any of these rules that they're going to set, and they will 100% break these rules. And number two, it's an open question how the complexes in these countries are going to react to that. Fernando Tatis Jr., David Ortiz, and I think a couple other Dominican players now have said that this might kill baseball in the Dominican Republic. And I don't think that that's true, but I do think that they have a point as to the international draft making it difficult for the current system to exist because you will no longer be dealing directly with team scouts and so on. You're going to be working through this mechanism of the draft and that could make things, um, that could make things more difficult on their end, might make it less of a lucrative business, might mean some of those academies go away. And a lot of these players end up joining that system after they retire and making money off of the deals they make for the next generation of players. So there is like a weird perverse incentive there that could go away with the draft, with the international draft. Opinion among scouts and so on is bitterly divided on this. Some of them think it really would help, and some of them are pretty convinced that it wouldn't. And it's kind of hard to see how it would help, given that we're dealing with an organization that has no interest in fixing any of its systemic issues. Like it, the, the number of teams that have gotten into trouble for international system issues, uh, the Do- well, the Dodgers didn't get in trouble, but uh, they might came be close- easier to list the teams that haven't. True. Yeah. Um, in recent years, I think there's the, the Braves lost a general manager to some weird practices. And it came out that the Dodgers had a list on which they rated their uh, international scouts and so on. Uh, on a five-star system based on how likely they were to be engaged in criminal activity, such as human trafficking. <laughs> so these are the people you're dealing with. Real uh, MLB's not, Any, not putting Anytime you're keeping that. a spreadsheet on your employees' uh, likelihood for criminal activity, we're against that here on Punching Out. Uh, you should not be doing that. That's, that's bad. Just not keep good. that keep that keep that stuff off Excel. You can't do yeah. that. You <laughs> don't want that stuff to end up on SharePoint. What are you doing? <laughs> the summary of I mean, that's what got the Cardinals in trouble when they hacked the Astros, and that was what got the Astros in trouble with the sign stealing is flipping uh Microsoft 365, guys. It's <laughs> bad. And I, I love how every time I use it, it's like you should rate me. How do you like? Do you like using me? Outlook, no, literally nobody does. Anyways, the point is, the gut feeling I have about the international draft is that if the owners want it, it must be bad. Like there's there's no good that can come of it. 
yeah, anytime they ask for something, immediately I'm going to say no. And that goes for banning the shift. I had to say it. It's not player related, but it is dumb. There we go. I got it off my chest. Ironically, taking a hard left swing at the at the end there. <laughs> something that something that banning the shift would probably help with. Yeah, well, I still got it past y'all's defense, so. Hmm. Yeah, fair. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point. Something we should have said when we started this, because I know that a lot of people don't know the difference between a lockout and a strike. And to quote Comrade Amanda, who was on a previous episode, strikes are good because they're the workers stopping work. Lockouts are bad because it's capital stopping work. And much the same way, if MLB suggests something, it's a bad idea. It's not good. Just sort of as a quick question, I I think you can answer this simply, um, but our listeners, you know, might not be fully, you know, have thought this out. Why, why do owners love drafts? You know, what's, what, what do they love about it? I think they like the idea of having ownership over a player and that this allows them to basically call dibs on a player for the foreseeable future. In the case of MLB, uh, six years of professional play, let alone whatever they have to slog through in the minors. So the fact that they can basically rule this kid's life for a decade or more uh, is great for them. Because as Noah said, it is set in the books there's no changing it they don't have to think much farther than that yeah and it and while it's worth pointing out that the mlb draft is like 0.0001 less exploitative and that you can refuse uh your your draft pick and you can you know go back to college or try another year on the indie circuit or whatever and then try it again uh well not the indie circuit because that makes you a pro player you want to be eligible again but even then like the drafts as a concept are should be abolished. They're an exploitative practice that rewards teams for doing badly, and they force a player to sign with one team if he wants to play that coming season. And that alone makes them a problem from a labor standpoint. Right. It keeps teams from bidding against each other for player services, which is you know the last thing they want to do. They want to, as we said repeatedly through this episode and the last episode on this subject, they want to, if not keep costs down, though they definitely want to do that, they want to control costs. And when you're introducing bidding wars into any equation, things get out of control. I think that's a good place to wrap up this segment. When we come back, we'll have our, you know, looking towards the future segment. It might not be that positive, but we can try and take some lessons from what we've learned over the course of this lockout and see what still needs to be addressed in future deals and with baseball as a whole. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Play ball! And Lou. Hey, guys. Uh, Major League Baseball teams will be following Noah's orders and playing ball this spring because, as we've discussed over the last 40 minutes or so, they reached an agreement with the Players Association on, you know, a new collective bargaining agreement ending, you know, the lockout at 99 days. I want to spend a little time here at the end of today's show talking a bit about what we've learned over the course of this lockout and the work that remains to be done to make baseball um, a little more player friendly, if nothing else. Um, I, I think the first takeaway that at least I've had and I've seen a lot of other people have over the course of this lockout, it may just be the circles I follow on Twitter, is that the owners really are not to be trusted. Um, I mentioned a bit in our first segment that they had imposed a deadline that would necessitate canceling games. And nevertheless, despite passing that deadline, no regular season games are getting canceled. Their word is not to be taken at face value because they're just openly willing to lie for, you know, cheap bargaining value. 
and and let's be clear because we we failed to say this clearly the last time they could have never canceled games unilaterally that is part of the collective bargaining agreement so it was in fact impossible for them to do that uh when they said that that was rob manfred grinning his way through a press conference but he had no actual power to do that unless the players association conceded those games so that's the level we're talking about frankly if you as a baseball fan trust the owners at this point i'm gonna be polite and say that you maybe have some things that you should reconsider um but i think if you've listened to the rest of this episode you're probably on our side about this sort of thing and and that is that whether it's hal steinbrenner or jim crane or dick momford or you know, John Sutton. W. Henry. Ugh. <laughs> now, why terrible. are people still allowed to be named John Henry? Uh, <laughs> any of these people, if you're any, or Liberty Media, or the Rogers guy for the Blue Jays, or whatever, or the Ricketts, again, family and disease. If you're named after, if you're any of these people, like it, it, you're, you're bolt, you're bolt a shot. Like there should be no baseball fan who takes you seriously. You are a cartoon. You are an evil Muppet. That is what you are. So that's, that's one thing. No trusting the owners. That would be an important step forward for sure. I think the other big one that we need to talk about and that has been gaining a lot of steam is unionizing the minors. Um, The minor leagues weren't part of this CBA because they couldn't be because they're not part of the bargaining unit. So MLBPA could try to get things, but actually the adversarial negotiation process that we have in this country actually makes it harder for them to, it actually punishes them for trying to do that because MLB could declare various things if MLBPA tried to negotiate on behalf of players that are not within its bargaining unit. So the miners will have to unionize if they want better treatment. And by better treatment, I mean like a living wage, food. Um, a housing alliance that doesn't suck because it looks like after MLB teams put out this PR statement saying that they were going to provide housing for all of their minor leaguers. Reporters are asking the hard questions of what does that look like? And team executives are worryingly not capable of answering them. So that's an issue. As we always talk about on these strike zone episodes, um, you know, the MLB players at the top of the heap who are making, you know, several million dollars a year. It's easy. It's understandable if you don't necessarily have the greatest of sympathy for their plight, but professional athletes, the majority of them are not making anywhere close to that, even with, even within major league baseball, but especially when you get down to the level of minor league baseball, where there are more players in the minors than in the major leagues, just by, the virtue of how many teams there are in each. And those players are making less than $12,000 a year. Every single one of them. It's, it's disgusting. Is what and it at is. At one and- point too, if I remember correctly, uh, MLB was proposing axing even more ML or minor league jobs as part of any kind of CBA. Uh, this yeah, we, we have to unite the minors. It's just, it's far too late in the game for us to be doing, you know, really only now getting serious about that, I think. But it has to be done. It is the only way forward. It, it is the only way forward in which minor league players actually, you know, end up with a, a suite of rights as workers. Because as we've seen, MLB cannot be trusted to have their best interests at heart. I mean, we knew that, but it's obvious now that even when they make the right move so that people will say, Oh, isn't this a good thing they're doing? They are going to screw it up on the back end, even if they have the best of intentions and they don't. We discussed this a bit on our previous episode, but um, you know, it really is something to realize that uh, MLB teams could give their players, their minor league players, the best possible environments for developing their talents and skills so that they become, you know, talented baseball players who are under the team's control for six years. 
And nevertheless, they choose not to. They choose to subject minor league players to diner meals on hours-long bus rides just for the sake of saving pennies, you know, from the perspective of ownership. It's impossible to understand if you are under the belief that their primary objective is to win baseball games. It's not. Or even... Or even run a baseball team or even run an organization. Even if you don't care about winning baseball games, the fact that they're not even willing to treat these people as human beings shows that they're not even interested in having baseball players. They are interested in having assets. Um, I've said before on this show that capital is angry and has spent the last however many years angry that it has to pay us at all, that it has to give us anything for our labor and one of the places in which that is most obvious because we can all see it happening is the minor leagues like you see you you've seen it from players who are advocating for the next generation of minor leaguers how badly uh you know the 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 off-season jobs the rooms with five guys living in them that are supposed to sleep to the air mattresses the making the the subsisting on uh, what is it like Domino's pizza or whatever for weeks at a time and ramen so that they can make it to games. These are not organizations that are interested in having baseball teams. These are organizations that are interested in making money. And frankly, it makes it really hard to be a proud baseball fan of any team in this league because it's so obvious that it's got nothing to do with you're not even the laundry isn't even coming into it. So to speak, your team is a collection of Excel spreadsheets on a server. And the people that you are seeing play the sport are to the people that run that team, to the people that make all of those decisions are somehow the smallest part of it. And these are the people, the, these penny pinching monsters are the people that we have basically given full control over to the future of the sport. So, you know, forget about making money. If they don't fundamentally change how they think about the sport, and and not just in terms of dollars and cents, they will destroy baseball and make it completely unviable. No matter how much money they're making now, if they don't increase access to uh, games for for the public at large, if they don't give more players more support from minor league on up, or even just high school students or or middle school students and and actually growing and expanding the interest in the sport, they are going to destroy it because they only see it as a revenue stream. That's it. And that is not the game that I love. The game that I love is a nice summer day watching a bunch of players, maybe while I have an adult beverage or not. It's that. That's baseball. Not did I net how many billions this year? One positive thing that came from this lockout is you saw, in some places at least, some talk of revoking Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption which um, has long protected the league from competition and from accusations that they are, in fact, a trust and you know must therefore be broken up. It is the one thing that allows them to have this business model where players don't really have an option in where they go. You, you saw proposed legislation from Bernie Sanders, for example, that would strip them of their protected status. Um, and that may also be another direction to go in the future, even now that this lockout is over with to, you know, reduce the power of these uh, oligarchs to use Sanders term who currently control the game. I thought you could only be an oligarch if you're Russian. We really don't have time for that discussion. Uh, We're coming up on the end of our hour for this week. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was punching out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Leo. 
Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.